You'll turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read a portion of Scripture from Exodus 12 and Exodus 14. It should be projected behind me. But we're working through the big story of the Bible and, and to get oriented to these big themes that, that are in the book and, and see how it's connected to Jesus and, and then see also how God calls his people to respond to grace by going out into the world and, and represent him. So we're going to look at the last plague, the Passover and the Red Sea this morning, and um, it'll lead us to the table. So let's read Exodus 12, 1 to 13. This is the word of our God. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night. Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and in its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then turn over to chapter 14, verses 10 to 29. They, they left, they got out, and now Pharaoh's chasing them. It says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, look down on the Lord, look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And then as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. He has spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we have been set free from slavery to sin and death through Jesus. And I pray that today's passage would help grow us in wisdom and understanding to understand more deeply what you have done. And that you would also continue to set us free from the sin that snares us. Uh, that we would continue to grow in our ability to use this freedom you've given us to love our neighbors. And so show us Jesus today. Show us uh, the Passover lamb and, and what you have done so that we might be more faithful as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So one of those... Um, churchianity words, if you could put it that way, um, that we use all the time in, in the church. And if you grow up here, you just take it for granted. But at the moment you go out and talk to your neighbors about this word, uh, it's often misunderstood or they're offended, right? We use this word all the time that, that we need God's salvation, right? Salvation is a Bible word. We say things like every human being needs saved, we're good Reformed Christians, so we say, by grace you have been saved. Uh, you're saved through faith alone. Uh, you're saved by the work of Christ alone. Over and over again, you find out as you read the Bible, it's impossible to know the Lord without knowing as well his salvation, because he is the Lord of salvation. Right? And so that whole idea of what in the world is salvation and what is he saving us from comes from the Exodus story. Right? 
Exodus 15, we didn't read, right? But it's, it's that great song, the song of Moses after they come across the Red Sea. It says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And so it's one of those things that when you're reading the Bible and you're, you're talking about Jesus to others, you cannot avoid a conversation about knowing the Lord and connecting the dots to what Jesus has done for our salvation because that's how God has made himself known among the nations, both with Israel and with Jesus, right? and, which is a very different way of conceiving of spirituality than our neighbors. Right? I mean, our neighbors would love the portrait of God coming to save a suffering people and set them free. Right? But to say you need salvation from your sin, from yourself, from all these things that are killing you and enslaving you and leading to death, that, that, that's a conf- conf- confrontation. There we go. Couldn't get the word out. Right? The God of the Bible, that's what he does. He comes to every human being and says, the main thing you need is to be rescued. You need, you need my salvation. And so that's what I want to do this morning is, is to let Exodus confront us with what we need saved from and what we are saved for. Uh, because we, we need to be saved, every human being does, from what's killing and enslaving us, um, sin and death. And so these texts that we looked at, they're going to show us why we need saved going to show us how we're saved and then why we can sing about that salvation. Um, and so let's look at why we need saved. All right, if you remember last week, we talked about this impression that a lot of people have gotten when they read the Exodus story, that it's a story about God saving the good guys, Israel, from and smokes the bacon of the bad guys, Egypt. But when you come to the story of Passover, it's impossible to come to that conclusion. Right? I mean, the Passover story is making clear that Israel is a victim of evil and cruelty. They're suffering, they're languishing. We talked about that language before. Uh, they're so miserable, they can't even believe that God will rescue them. But we also learn through the Passover story the depths of what is wrong with Israel themselves and how much mercy God shows when he comes to rescue them. Because they too are enslaved to sin. Right? And up to this point in the story, we, we've, we walked through the nine plagues last week. They've, they've been escalating in damage and power. They're continually to reveal both God's justice against those who are causing harm, as well as his covenant loyalty to Israel. Pharaoh keeps getting more and more stubborn, refusing to let God's people go. And then God says in chapter 10, well, I have one more plague in mind. I'm going to bring it against Pharaoh in Egypt. And afterward, it's going to be so significant, he's going to drive you out. He's not just going to say, you may go. He's going to kick you out. And you'll be able to plunder them. They'll, get, they'll just give you gifts of gold and silver. And when I do this thing, says the Lord, you'll be free to leave and serve and follow me. And what is that thing, right? It's the the 10th plague. This is chapter 11, verse 4. The Lord says about midnight, I'm going to go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh all the way down to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and even the firstborn of the cattle. 
And there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt. And all your servants, this is Moses now talking to Pharaoh, all your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me and say, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And then Moses left Pharaoh in hot anger. So, it's a horrific plague. Death is coming for the firstborns. Why would God do this? Right, and the, the short answer is he's coming to rescue, to save his firstborn son, Israel, because that's what Israel is called. You've got to have that in the back of your head. In chapter 4, God says to Pharaoh, let my Israel, my firstborn, go. They are mine, not yours. And so that sets the stage for everything that, is, that Egypt is doing to Israel, right? They are, they are violently oppressing, killing, harming, enslaving God's firstborn. Right? And so God being the father he is, he's coming to rescue, defend, protect his people. He's bringing, this is a father or dad who's going to do justice. The Egyptians have killed Hebrew sons. That was Pharaoh's command. And so one of the ways to look at this is, here's the Lord saying, as you have done to my people, so now I will do to yours. Right. But what about Israel? Why are, why are they let off the hook? How are they spared God's justice? Is it because of their moral superior quality? Right? And that's what chapter 12 is all about with the, past, the story of the Passover. Right? When they're told to go take the spotless lamb, one for each household, and then take the blood of the lamb and spread it on their door frame. And the blood of the lamb will be the sign that when the Lord passes over the house, I will pass over you. Therefore, no plague shall fall on you. In other words, here's what God's saying to Israel. These people that he loves, that he's coming to rescue, that he's had compassion on, and he's sworn to rescue, he says, Israel, don't you dare think for a second if you do not obey my voice and go outside of your house when I come that you will be spared because the destroyer will strike you if you do not take refuge under the blood of the Lamb. The same plague will fall on you if you don't obey my voice. And so what, what this is showing us, is you're seeing God as an impartial judge in many ways, even as he's making a distinction. Because Israel deserves God's judgment and justice, the same judgment as Egypt. The only difference between Egypt and Israel is the blood of the lamb. Right? So you got the oppressor and the oppressed both guilty of sin. Right, I know in the narrative, this is the first time you, you get that clear sense that God's people are both sufferers and sinners. I mean, in other words, when, when you read the story, it's really tempting to say, you know what, Pharaoh's their biggest problem, Egypt is their biggest problem like we do. We look at our circumstances and say, that's my biggest problem. God, make me more comfortable. Fix my biggest problem. It's outside of me. But Passover is saying, no, your biggest problem is not just outside of you, right? The biggest problem is inside. 
It's in the human heart. See, Passover is communicating that Israel needs to be set free from slavery, but specifically slavery to sin. And they too need deserve God's justice. We'll put it that way. The Lord is coming in judgment, and either lambs are going to die or firstborn sons are going to die, but he's coming. Right? And we don't get too much from the text other than you better listen or it won't go well from you as regards to what in, in the world is actually going on in Israel's heart because the way you find out Israel is enslaved to sin is through the rest of the story of Exodus as they see these great signs and wonders and they don't change. Um, Ezekiel 20 has a very blunt retelling of these events to remind Israel of just what they've forgotten, what they were actually like. And Ezekiel 27 says that God told them while they were in slavery in Egypt, I want you to cast away uh, the detestable things your eyes feast on and don't defile your, yourselves with the idols of Egypt because I am the Lord your God. He said, guys, you're acting just like the Egyptians. You worship what they worship. You love what they love. Then it goes on to say, but Israel, they rebelled against me. They were not willing to listen. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then God said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the land of Egypt, but I spared them for the sake of my name so that it would not be profaned in the sight of the nations. And I share that just because that's what Passover is communicating. Israel is guilty, not innocent. They too deserve God's justice, and so that the world might know God's name, God had mercy on them. And so this is the big point of the Exodus story that every human being needs God's salvation because like Israel, we are enslaved to sin and self, death and hell. And if we don't find a place to take refuge, the blood of the lamb, we're in trouble. Tim Keller puts this uh, well. He says, you're either serving the Lord as the absolute Lord of your life or you're in terrible slavery to something else. There is nothing else. There are no other alternatives. There's nothing between. You're never your own. You never belong to yourself. You are always ruled. This is now me, right? You're you're always ruled. Something always occupies the throne of your heart. If, If it's not the Lord, it's something else. And if it's not the Lord, you're not free. Because it's like Pharaoh. That if you let it down, he's going to come hunt you down with an army and you're going to fall apart. And so that's, that's the haunting confrontation of salvation. Do you believe that you were enslaved to sin? And in many ways, God is still going to work at re- setting you free from those things. Even today, he's sanctifying you if you're a Christian, which is putting to death those things you're addicted to. Let's keep pressing this. Uh, Pharaoh in chapter 14, verse 5, um, 
when he has that moment after they kicked Israel out, he says, what have we done that we let Israel stop serving us? And then he gets his army and, they, and the horses and the chariots, and they're coming full bore, ready to either re-enslave or slaughter Israel. And did you hear what the Israelites said when they saw Pharaoh coming? They said, do you remember what we said? We said, leave us alone. It was better to be in Egypt. It was better to serve them than to die in the wilderness. That's the slavery in their hearts. Right, over and over again for the next 40 years when something bad happens. God, you're terrible. You're not living up to your end of the bargain. It was better for us in Egypt. We, when we had meat in the pots, we had bread, we, we stuffed our bellies. Everything was comfortable and wonderful in Egypt. Right? Those are not the words of rational people. Those are the words of people who've been enslaved to sin. Right? They're slaves to fear. They're slaves to their circumstances. Uh, completely unable on their own to trust the God who got them out of Egypt. Right? And so I think this is starting to give us a clue here. How do you diagnose what you and I are enslaved to or have been enslaved to? Right? Because we're Americans. Right? We're free. <laughs> so often I don't feel like a slave. I feel like I'm in the driver's seat. I'm in control. I'm the captain of my fate. I'm the master of my soul. And then failure sets in. Or maybe it's you realize you, you'll never get that thing that you've been slaving yourself for. In that moment, you know what it feels like? It feels like Pharaoh himself is coming after you and saying, you better come back and serve me or I will kill you. It's your choice. Enslaved to fear, fear of death. It holds on, right? You know, those places where you say, if I don't have this, then life isn't worth living, and it feels like I'm dying if I don't have it, right? We're enslaved to sin. And it's not rational because we're ruled by what we want. And what we want, we serve. To quote Jesus, he who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the testimony of scriptures is that while we were slaves to sin like Israel, we didn't want God and we don't want him until he sets us free. Right? So, we're, we're slaves outside of Christ. Bob Dylan got it right when he plagiarized the Bible. <laughs> you got to serve somebody or something. Right. And it's going to rule over you to control your thoughts, your dreams. It's going to deceive your heart, deceive your mind. I mean, the closest modern parallel I can think of is, is addiction and all the damage that causes, where you irrationally run after things that destroy your body, break down your relationships, ruin your life, but you're so hooked that you can't conceive of life without it. See, Passover... It's showing me, it's showing you that like Israel, our biggest problem is that we need to be saved from not serving God because any other master is a cruel master and will not forgive you. Anything else like Pharaoh will hunt you down and lead you to death. Right? And this isn't just an Old Testament idea, it's a New Testament idea. 
That's how Paul talks about the gospel in Romans 6, where he says, your old self was crucified with Christ. Why? So that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. It was in our assurance of pardon. At once, you were under the domain of darkness, but you've been transferred into the, another kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved Son, and with him is forgiveness. Right. And so this is, this is what the Exodus event is about. You and I need saved, and we need saved from slavery to sin. And if we're enslaved and we don't want God, we need God to do the whole work. In other words, we really do, like Israel, have to sit back, be silent, and watch the Lord fight for us. So that leads to the second point. How are we saved? And so you're getting the idea, right? The Passover story is not God rescuing the good guys and smoking the bad guys. This is the Lord, the God of salvation, coming to set Israel free while they were still his enemies. They weren't attracted to him. How does he save? And that is where we get that whole narrative about the blood of the lamb. Right, that what sets people free is seeing God himself provide a spotless substitute to save his people from judgment and death. Right? It'd be really helpful to go back and, and think about everything we said about the firstborn in the story of Abraham and Isaac but I know that every firstborn son who was sitting at that first Passover meal and every Passover celebration after that, would, as he's eating the bread and, and tasting the lamb, he was knowing that if, if I did not, if we did not take refuge under the blood of the lamb, I would be dead. The lamb took his place. Right? See? We so often think our biggest problem is suffering, and it is a problem. God sees it, and he has compassion, and his heart breaks. That's, that's the first part of the Exodus story. But there's a deeper bondage. There's, there's guilt and shame we can't escape, and death and judgment. And so God provides a spotless substitute to die in the place of a firstborn son. The lamb takes the place of the guilty so that the guilty may go free that Israel, God's firstborn, may be saved. Right? And so that's what it says at the end of chapter 12. This is the Lord's Passover. And, and later it's going to say, uh, continue to practice it wherever you go. And when your children ask why you're eating the bread and killing the lamb, right? they're a part of this ritual, tell them the story. Just tell them the story again of how God struck Egypt but spared our houses. There's a very real sense of we deserve this and God spared us. Now, we're Christians reading this story on a communion Sunday, so it's not hard to see the parallels. Because if you fast forward to the New Testament, what is Jesus called? He's called our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5-7. And so Jesus, our Passover lamb, on the night he was betrayed, he was in the upper room with his disciples celebrating Passover. And when he stood up to explain it, because that was the pattern, right? The father would stand up and say, here's what all this means. Here's why we eat the bread of affliction, right? It's the bread. It's reminding us of our suffering and, and our sin and what God saw and his promises to rescue and redeem. Well, Jesus, when he stood up to explain the story to his disciples, 
Everybody expected him to tell that story again, that this bread is the bread of the suffering of God's people. And let us remember how the Lord saw us, loved us, and saved us from slavery to serve him here. But what does Jesus actually say at the Last Supper? He distributes the bread, and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. Jesus, to, to these, every year of their lives, they've been replaying, retelling the story of Passover, that they would hear Jesus standing up to say, my body is the bread of affliction broken for you. My suffering, my body is now for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have to be broken in order to set you free from slavery to sin because that's been the real problem all along. And then we're told Jesus takes a cup and he says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every disciple there had to be wondering and thinking, right, your blood of the covenant, the only blood shed at Passover, the sign of God's grace and forgiveness was the blood of the lamb. And so this is what Jesus is saying at the Last Supper broken body and the blood of the lamb all along was pointing to me, God's true firstborn son. And so I am here in love to take your place so that you, the guilty, may go free. And that's the irony of the gospel, that Jesus, God's true firstborn, the son whom the father loves, who has been faithful and obedient in all things, dies like one of the Egyptian firstborn on the cross, not protected from God's judgment, but crushed under it. Right? I mean, Israel's firstborn status, that protected them, but not so for Jesus, by his choice. Because in love, Jesus gave himself up for us in order to save us from our sins and deliver us from this present evil age to set us free so that you and I might become God's, we, be, we join the ranks of God's firstborn sons in Christ so that we might now be set free to serve, trust, love our Heavenly Father. All right, so when you put your trust in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's what happens is God adopts you and you join the ranks of God's firstborn in Christ, who is the perfect one, the perfect son. Right? And so that's Israel's story is our story as Christians, just more clear because we, we now see Jesus. That we who have no claim on God's love, affection, or attention, haven't done anything to merit rescue or salvation while we were still sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us to set us free as the the true Passover lamb. And he sets you free now because you now have a love that you can never get by yourself. <laughs> it's a love that's incomparable. And that's the gift. Right? How are you set free by this salvation of Jesus and the lamb? Well, we've been talking about this in Sunday school. Israel, all along throughout the Old Testament, are just like their neighbors. They believe 
and they worship like their neighbors. They just want to fit in. They want to be liked by their neighbors. That's what controls their behavior. They're enslaved, really, to what other people think. Um, They want to be cool. They want to fit in. They want to look strong. They don't want to look foolish. And the gospel of Jesus comes along and says, no, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. In other words, that because the gospel gives you that status of being God's beloved son in Christ Jesus, and your sins are forgiven, you no longer need to fit in because you have an incomparable love that nobody else in the world has outside of Christ. It's an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love. You actually have a God who forgives your sin. There's no other place in the world like that. And you're given that holy distinction of belonging to Jesus now, and you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel then. It takes some pressure off, right? I don't need to use people to get them to like me. Um, I don't need to be ashamed of believing differently. I can stand and say, Jesus saved me, and not be ashamed of it. It also sets us free from uh, looking down on those who are outside of refuge of the blood of the Lamb. Right? I'll put it this way, it sets us free from tribal arrogance. I mean, if you, just in the, the wider world, feels like we're increasingly dividing, increasingly shaming those who don't agree with us, And the gospel comes along in all its glorious narrowness and says the only way to escape our creator's judgment is by taking refuge under the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. But that narrowness actually equips you to love people who are different than you. Right? Because no Hebrew could ever say, God saved me because I was better than the Egyptians. They would say, my house was spared by the blood of the lamb, for without that, I would be with them. Egyptians. Which means, like, for us as Christians who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, right? God makes a holy distinction. We belong to Him, but it does not give us the right to think God loves us and to to look down on them Um, because we know what it's like to be enslaved to sin, to what it's like to be under the power of the dominion of a power you can never escape on your own. So that should lead us to a compassion for those who are trapped by themselves. Last point before we come to the table. The Passover was an event, but it's an event with a trajectory, a goal, which is to set God's people free, and it leads them to the Red Sea. And historically, and, and in the Bible, all right, Passover points to the death of Christ, and the Red Sea crossing reminds us of the resurrection and new life, a whole new way of living. Because right? think about Israel. What have they seen? Right? They saw lambs killed. They heard crying and wailing over the death of the Egyptian firstborn sons. They saw God act in these powerful ways. Other ethnicities joined them as they fled Egypt in haste in one night. They saw God fight for them, right? There was this mysterious, invisible warrior, cloud, smoke, fire, protecting them from the Egyptian army, and they saw God fight for them in front, right? Splitting the Red Sea so they could walk through on dry land. 
And then seeing Pharaoh and his army just completely wasted and drowned in the waters of judgment. Now, if you're, you're Israel on the other side, what's changed for them? Right? Has their hearts been transformed? And what fundamentally has changed is who they belong to. Before they belonged to Pharaoh and all of his cruelty, now on the other side of the Red Sea, they are Yahweh's firstborn son, his son whom he loves. Right? That's, what, that's who they're called to serve and to learn how to live in relationship with. That's what we're going to talk about next week, how these events, God called them for a purpose to represent him in the world, to be a priesthood to the nations. But I know if we were, this were a modern movie, you know what the story would go is God saved them from their suffering and misery in Egypt. He saw their pain and he saved them. And he says, on the other side of the Red Sea, now you're free. Go and find what makes you happy. <laughs> but that is not the logic of the gospel. It's not the logic of Exodus. No, in fact, they celebrate and sing, God is my God and he fought for me. I belong to him now. I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, the Lord, to which we would add Jesus Christ. Right? It's a whole new way of life. They, they now live under the rule and reign of a God who loves them and has set them free. Uh, they got to learn how to live together now. Right? But what happened to Israel, right, where you can look back and see your enemies defeated and, and judgment is passed, happens for us as Christians. Right, this is what Paul says in Romans. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. And as you're reading Paul, that newness of life, what he says is, hey, sin and death and your old ways of thinking no longer have dominion over you because you now are under the reign uh, of grace. Right? And so apply this for a minute before we come to the table. As apply the Red Sea to us as Christians, the old life of slavery is gone. It's dead. It was buried with Christ. And you're now raised with him into this new relationship with the living God whose love now controls us. Right? And the old ways of thinking, right? any other God that you choose outside of Christ, this is the way it's going to motivate you. It's either going to be guilt, you're not doing enough. It's either going to be shame, you're not enough. Or it's going to be fear. Right? It's going to hunt you down and your life's going to fall apart. And it's going to use fear of death to control you. What we're called as Christians to do is to look at what's been buried in the depths of the sea so that your guilt and shame no longer control you. They've been drowned with Pharaoh, unable to rise to haunt you. It is finished. Death can't be used to control you because Christ is alive and he has sworn that he will raise you from the dead. It's an, it's an enemy that will be defeated, but Christ's resurrection has taken away its sting. In other words, 
according to uh, Mike Wilkerson, our enemies have been disarmed, drowned, and along with all the power of lies and all those shameful wounds, that burden of shame is yours no longer to carry. It belongs with the Egyptian army buried in the sea. So cast your burden into the sea and walk free in your new life in Christ. Because now you follow the one who loves you and may his love control how then you shall live. Let's pray. Father, as we meditate on the gospel according to the Passover and the Red Sea, You've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light that we might say thank you and proclaim your name and your greatness to the nations. So I pray that as we come to the table now, you would use this moment to remind us that um, you had declared us perfect in Christ and you are sanctifying us. You're teaching us how to, to belong to you and how then we should live. So use, use your sacrament, these ordinary means of grace, that as we taste the broken body of Christ for us, that you would drive deeper faith in the gospel and learn how, how to follow you because we do belong body and soul and we want to be made ready from now on, willing uh, to keep your commands because you are good. So do that work in us as we come to the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.